Hello and welcome to the Plants and Pipettes podcast. I'm Tegan. Hi. Hi, I'm Yoram. <laughs> I never know if, if you like leave a gap where, where I, I say hi my, in my name and I don't want to have like a weird pause. But then more often than not, I'm just like interrupting you with saying hi. <laughs> <laughs> <So>. <laughs> it's because I don't leave you space <laughs> to it's, talk. <laughs> it's only been 140 some uh, something episodes. So at one point we'll figure out how we open this show. <laughs> We've been off for a couple of weeks because what happened? I think I went to a conference in Boston, um, which was fun and exciting. And then I kind of put off the podcast because I knew I was coming to Berlin. And I was like, oh, we'll just record when we're in Berlin. Except I kind of forgot to tell Yoram I was coming to Berlin, I think. Yeah. yeah. It was sort <laughs> Until of, you, I was you like, like, hey, I'm what are here. you doing tomorrow? Can I come over? And you were like, what the hell is happening? And I just, I just kind of, I thought you would feel it somehow that I would be, I was closer to you. <laughs> And I felt know. the disturbance in the force, but like <laughs> these days, I feel so many of them. I don't know, like what caused them specifically. That's my bad. I booked I booked the tickets so far in advance because um, it was train tickets. So like you have to book them hell of a long way in advance, or they're very expensive. Um, and I, I guess I kind of thought I informed you. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe you even did, and I I forgot. Like I'm... I don't think I did. That's very generous of you, but I just I just don't think I did. I was like. <laughs> Because I, I was going to come in March or May or one of the M months and then it just... Anyway, anyway. this is very un, unexciting logistics. But I was in Berlin and it was really lovely. And I had one of those like perfect summer weekends there. Not with Yarm. Um, my time with Yarm was very <laughs> dull indeed. And I hated every moment of it. Um, I found out that Yarm's, Yarm's son has been influenced by my Australian influence and spent some time of his life wanting to be a wombat. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 like, it's sort of every morning he picks a different animal that he wants to be, but often it's a wombat. And then he wants to eat oats and carrots and mm -hmm. uh, destroy things, yes. cause mayhem and yes. mischief. Um, this is based on a, a semi-famous Australian book called Diary of a Wombat um, by Jackie French, I think is the author, which yeah. I gave. I think I gave it to him, right? Yeah. Yes. And at one point we found like a German translation of sort of the second book uh, in, in the thing in the library, in the public library and got that as well. And it sort of triggered him again to really be into <laughs> being a wombat. <laughs> Want to beat up things with the excuse of being a wombat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think today he wanted to be a chicken, a cat and uh, I don't know, I, I think a third animal. Like he always chooses an animal that has like a particular trait that he wants to play right now and often something around uh, creating a big mess yeah he wanted to be a muppet as well today and then he would eat um like little saltine crackers like the the cookie monster and drop everything on the floor pretty much you know how he's like but i think it's true like um we had these kind of questions when I think it was in, in the first year of school, they had this question of what do you want to be when you grow up and we have to draw it. And I, mine is I wanted to be a ballerina, which I don't, somebody must have told me to write. There's no way. I have no coordination. I'm not sure how that came into, but realistically, when I was that age, I didn't like want to be a scientist or a podcaster or whatever. I wanted to be a cat. Like 90% of the time I wanted to be a cat. We played a game where I was a cat and like the game was in fact that I was a naughty cat and I would just like be a pain and my sister would have to like tell me off as the human like it was called kitty and kitty and person i think was like the entire game was she was a person i was like this is why we're meant to be together tegan on this <laughs> show because um i also played to be a cat with my brother and we both were cats <laughs> i don't exactly know like if we caused mayhem or something but we definitely both were cats and on all fours and meowing and uh <laughs> at the age of like six or seven um 
Yeah, I think that's just every kid must go through the I want to be a cat stage, surely. Like, yeah, my son today told me he wants to do what I do when he grows up. And I was like, I don't even know what I do. <laughs> like, did, did you ask him? Like, I no, mean, no, he just like out of the blue, he was like, yeah, dad, um, when I grow up, I want to do what you do. <laughs> no, no, but did you ask him, yeah, what what is it that I do? Like, what, what yeah. actually do you think my job is? Because at the moment, I'm not yeah, entirely you, sure what. <laughs> he was already jumping to like the next topic, so I couldn't investigate. <laughs> <laughs> what he thinks it is that I'm doing. Um, I think it was also like I told him that I will have a call with you tonight, and I think that was that also triggered it. So probably he just wanted to talk to you. <laughs> he thinks your job is just chatting to me on the phone. Then, yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a lovely job if I could monetize this, but no. Um, we're doing all of this for free, you listeners. Wow. Um, Shocking. Yes. I, like I could be a role model to my child to monetize a podcast, and we're not doing that. So. Mm. <laughs> Yeah. What else? What else have you been up to apart from? <laughs> I I I learned like a little plant fact that I didn't know um, from like a, a colleague that went to a first aid class, and there they learned that parsley, if you grow it for the second year, like it's a perennial plant, um, it becomes toxic. It, it uh, accumulates a couple of uh, compounds uh, no. into amounts that are not like toxic that it will kill you, but toxic it will mess up your digestive tract and you will feel bad when when eating it. So you should. Um, only grow parsley like like only eat it in the first year after it has flowered uh, it's 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 not sa- like safe or recommended to eat anymore and for kids it can be dangerous is what I, I learned from that and I googled it and it seemed to be true so um, I, yeah I just I just googled it and it got poisonous plant of the year for 2023 so this year's poisonous plant of the year oh, is yeah. parsley Yes, uh, I accidentally, in the intersection, have like a very interesting plant science fact, but no. <laughs> but yeah, so um, be aware if you Sorry. grow parsley in your garden that like eat it in the first year and then like kill it and regrow it for the next year. They contain toxin apiole and myristicin. Myristicin? I don't know. Yeah. Which are not good for you. Huh? Okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, and the other thing I did uh, just this week, um, and that's why like Tegan already complained that I have so many facts this t- today in our document. Um, and I did that because I, like, first of all, we wanted to record last week and then we postponed and then I had some more time to research. And so I added some stuff. Uh, and I did like a little like German language radio show, like just with like a live stream where I talked about some science facts and played some punk music in between. Um, just for my own fun and for like the handful of people that listened and um, that was a lot of fun it was a lot of Mm. like I mean it's better to have like a dialogue going on but it was also fun to like speak about science in my like native tongue because um, it's I don't know like it it flows differently and it was interesting to 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 experience that so that's what I've been up to and then link link in show notes and there's no real link to it yet. Like there is like oh, because it was fully it was live. just live. It was just ah. because I'm afraid of being sued for the music that I use. So it was just sort of like an ephemer- ephemeral live stream that is now like if what, you what? ask me nicely, I can send you a bootleg MP3 of it. Um, or you know when we get those time machines. Well, what was the exact date and time that this happened? Oh, I, uh, Monday or Tuesday. Um, so there was like the thirty first. Cool. Go or back the to second. Monday or Tuesday in August twenty twenty three. Hey, time machine. Go to the twenty first. Probably try Monday, and then if you if you miss it, you'll at least just hang around for an extra <laughs> exactly. day, and then you might hear it on Tuesday. Just don't get one of these time machines where you only have twelve hours in the time period that you travel to. You need at least like. <laughs> and don't kill hours. any butterflies. No, wait. Don't let any butterflies <laughs> flap their wings. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. Uh, the first story that I uh, picked uh, is about a researcher. Uh, who sat in the garden, and I want to know from you, I, I hope you didn't read already all of the like uh, headlines of the, the research, but yeah, let's just try it. A researcher uh, uh, sat in the garden, and uh, whenever an insect visited a plant, he put like a little bag over the flower once the insect was gone, and can you figure out why they did that? Um, why did you put a bag over the flower? I guess to stop other bees from coming to that flower, or you, you want only... One bee to see the flower, or the one insect to see the flower. Yeah, that's that's but one to, part of it. Yes. To what end? Um, I I cannot think why would you, you would do that. I mean, why did we bag plants in a greenhouse when we were still doing that? Yeah, sort of to thing? collect the seeds from the single flower, I guess. Yeah. Okay. And it's uh, pretty much what they wanted to do. They wanted to figure out um, if the kind of pollinator that visits a flower makes a difference in the outcome of the flower, in the success of the flower, in the seed quality, in the seed quantity. Um, because the the idea was that if you, um, depending on what kind of insect you ha you have, they might um, bring the pollen from different plants and different distances, and maybe that has something to do with like different populations. And so they tracked. Every pollinator that visited a member of three different plant species that they were looking at, white sage, black sage, and Phacelia distance. And then whenever they, they saw whatever creature like visit a flower, they would immediately bag the flowers um, and then collect the seeds, count the seeds, and then grew from these seeds uh, new plants and analyze the plants, um, sort of the, the germination success rate and also the fitness of the plants that come out of there. Mm -hmm. And this gave them then in the end out a, a readout of the seed quality, depending on the species that um, did the pollination. And um, they did that. It's also important to know in San Diego, a region where honeybees are present, but not native. Okay. And so what they found is that the seeds uh, that were pollinated by honeybees were worse in quality than those coming from um either other pollinators and also as a control they did like manual cross-pollination so they would like take the pollen from one plant and put it mm -hmm. on a second one um, to have like true cross-pollination uh, and what they also observed is that honeybees spend about twice as much time on a single plant than other insects other pollinators so what that means is that they are full of pollen from one plant and they're just like bringing pollen f within a plant from flower to flower so it's a lot of like selfing that's happening there um, or inbreeding and this inbreeding can lead to worse quality seed quality while did, wait, insects did, hmm? did they test to see that it was going in the same so they, they showed that it was also leading to this inbreeding yeah Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So they, they, they saw that the, the honeybees spent more time there, and I think they also did some inbreeding controls. Um, but yeah, so they figured out that like uh, the the native insects that travel quicker from from plant to plant and therefore have better cross pollination rates um, create better seeds, better offspring, um, higher quality offspring, and this is for us important to know because very often we when we think about like protecting the bees or protecting the pollinators yeah, I mean, like, we do like honeybee <laughs> protection measures like we we like people put up honeybees in their gardens and stuff like that because they think they're doing something good but if the bees are not native to that region 
they are not the best choice for pollinators for the local plants. Like they still work, but they don't work as well as if you would do other protective measures to boost like the the native local population of pollinators. Okay, so do, do you know what the other species were? Was it just like oh. completely different types of insects or? I don't know. <laughs> mm. I mean, yeah, I'm kind of curious about sort of what what the other organisms were. Like, if they're, I mean, are they more delicate, smaller things? Um, and also kind of what the portions proportions were of who's like is is it mostly honeybees coming in there at this point, or is it a little bit of everyone coming in there? Yeah, unfortunately, it's behind the paywall, so I can't read the full paper now and <laughs> figure it out. Okay. Um, so mm. they they only said like other pollinators in the in the summaries that I read. So yeah, but I imagine it's like uh, like other flies, wild bees, for example, as well, um, or uh, butterflies and stuff like this. But I don't know. This is pure speculation now. This 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 part, but yeah. I think I mean like there's definitely some yeah some problems with the honeybees also or like with some types of bees obviously being competitive with native species as well. I think I think in Australia and Tasmania people introduced bumblebees, so like these like fluffy, nice furry bees. Um, they think that they were deliberately introduced because they do this kind of buzz pollination, which mm-hmm. is really valuable for certain types of crops. So they think that they were like deliberately somebody brought this invasive species in to help with their crops. And now I think I think the bumblebees beat up the nice native bees or something like that. They're also quite um, aggressive. Bumblebees are aggressive? I thought they are sort of <laughs> the chilled, like big I, relaxed. I, I, I have to say I, I was having this casual chat with somebody like a year and a half ago so I can't exactly remember the details but I mean also like can you imagine like a, a nice delicate flower that's used to a, a small you know a small polite Australian bee as we can imagine all Australian bees would be and yeah. then a Oi! big yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then a big muscular European honey a bumblebee comes up and just like <laughs> sits on the flower and completely smashes it yeah. yeah chunks it up yeah yeah interesting I mean the damaging thing also yeah maybe they're just not very careful then they're not co-evolved with those flowers um maybe there's benefit in them also from from yeah like there's not like long term there's a there's a lack of benefit though I'm not sure okay yeah, you're probably but, just but, not but, suited but, for those flowers huh yeah I think honeybees are also much more like prone to transport pollen like they're really loaded up on pollen so when they are on on one plant they really load up the pollen from this one plant and then when they visit the other flowers they really carry a ton of their own pollen between Mm. the the flowers of the same plant Uh, whereas other insects they have like some pollen attached to them but they're not like they don't have specific pollen sacs that they fill with pollen actively because they use that to feed their young Um, that's not all of the insects are doing that so Therefore, um, that could also be a reason. But yeah, this is where, like, we're not bug researchers. We don't really know about insects apart from they're often good for the plants and sometimes bad for the plants. And then this is when we care about them. (laughs) But apart from that, I don't really know. And so, yeah, I can make the next one quick. Um, It's about CRISPR. And so, quick CRISPR is CRISPR. and this has been a science paper. Quisper, that, corner, quisper corner, though. Quisper please. corner. Quisper that, corner. <laughs> the Quisper corner that came out uh, about a science paper that came out very recently. And like I've, I've been talking so often about CRISPR in the past. And um, in the beginning, when it sort of was new and fresh, it was all about like, hey, in the future, we will be able to do this like amazing research with it. We can do plant breeding so quickly now. But it was all promises. Like very often when people get hyped about a new technology, they... They promise things and then it's really up 
to the research community to deliver on these things. And now with CRISPR, it's one of these amazing things where they keep on delivering. And now there has been um, a paper in Science about um, CRISPR multiplexing that they did in trees um, because they wanted to decrease the amount of lignin in a tree. And they wanted to do that because the, the valuable polymer in a tree is cellulose and hemicellulose for like if you make um, a cellulose pulp for paper production for example you want these fibers you want cellulose and hemicellulose you don't want the lignin because the lignin is sort of like a glue it's a very like networked polymer that's mm -hmm. not long and stretchy and makes nice fibers it's more like a like it's a glue that the plants use to to glue these strands of cellulose and hemicellulose together But in, in industrial processes, it has to be removed with like heat and strong chemicals and so on to really get out the, the cellulose fibers. So it would be really cool to have trees that are not completely knocked out in lignin, but that have like a lower percentage of lignin. So they still grow fine, but the technical extraction of cellulose gets easier. And that mm -hmm. was really difficult because it's like a complicated pathway for lignin, lots of stuff involved. Um, and so researchers um, combined like the very hip and trendy CRISPR multiplex with a very cr uh, trendy other tool, which is machine learning. And so they they programmed an algorithm that would look at like thousands of different cloning strategies uh, or, or like um, I think they looked at the gene expression network again paper behind the paywall couldn't look into the details there um, but they they had the computer look at thousands of different possibilities for experiments they could do the computer picked 350 of the most promising ones and then the researchers picked seven strategies they would actually use in a lab and they tr tried them out and all of them mm -hmm. involved at least three different genes that ha were targeted by CRISPR to be knocked out and they did that then and within six months um, they managed to get uh, plant lines that had a reduced lignin content um, in a tree species. I don't remember which tree species it is. It was, I think, one of like the conifers or something. Um, but like trees are not known to be fast growing. So they didn't go through like a ton of generations for that. And they still managed to get um, plants that had um, lignin content reduced and also there's like some other qualities of of the lignin content sort of the the network how how at what points in the polymer the lignin branches off um, there's some like quality descriptor for that and it was also better in that respect they included that in the in the cloning strategy to target that as well and it worked and very very quickly after sort of looking at what they wanted to do figuring out the experiment just getting the cloning done and getting lines that worked was super quick. Um, and now, yeah, it's, I mean, they're not production ready yet. These tree lines, of course, it's like, it's basic research. So there's still some stuff that needs to be done before they can put that in like the tree farms and, and actually extract cellulose from them. Um, but it shows that like one of the things that they promised, like very fast breeding of complicated things is happening. It, it, it mm -hmm. works. And um, that's why it's very cool. And I think that's why it's also like a science paper because it's pretty impressive what they did. I, I have um, actually something that's also on the CRISPR corner uh, subject. This is a paper that came out at the start of last month. Um, it's in Nature Biotech by Hans Hermann Vessels and colleagues. And I was going to actually have this as a cat fact because they named their system TIGER which stands for Targeted Inhibition of Gene Expression via gRNA Design. Um, and it's, it's actually not plant-related, which is why I sort of delegated it to the cat fact. Um, but it's, it's a similar thing where they're um, designing, like, 
using deep learning to sort of work out what both the on targets and the off targets can be for these um, different CRISPR. So they desi- they're designing these guide RNAs. Um, but this is the the cool, the new the newer CRISPR. I guess it's not that new anymore. But where um, they're using CRISPR to target RNA instead of DNA. So in, instead of like mm-hmm. cutting bits of the, the the genome out, you're just like attacking the RNA. So it's a little bit maybe more the fine-tuning level, right? What you can end up doing with this. So, I don't know. I thought it was cute just because of tiger, but not yeah. really a plant. Not really a plant <laughs> fact, if I'm perfectly honest. <laughs> so, the next story that I brought is about seed masting. And I think it's something we also talked about in the past a little bit. Um, do you remember what masting is? Yeah, it's, it's this idea that... Um, plants especially trees uh so plants go through these big events where they produce tons of flowers and then tons of seeds all at the same time so sort of a a community of plants all releases their their seeds at the same time and it has some benefits so the benefit with the flowers is if you've got a ton of flowers around all the pollinators can sort of swarm from tree to tree instead of having you know a sparsity and and losing the pollinators and then the big benefit is that when you make these seeds um, you basically overwhelm the the population of, of seed predators. So you have years where a lot of seeds will survive because the predators eat their fill and they are more, there are more seeds left. So that's the benefit to the trees. But then also by having like four or five years or even six or seven years when you don't make seeds, you kind of deplete these predator pools because they don't have anything to eat. So it's, it's kind of like a a funky way of increasing your survival as a tree. Yeah. And we don't really understand how and why trees are doing it and or like what decides what tree is doing the masting and what tree isn't doing the masting. I guess I guess there've been a few studies in the last couple of years looking at um whether and and how this has changed. So climate signals are obviously involved. Um the the trees are responding to favorable uh like environmental conditions so there's been discussions about how climate change is impacting trees ability to mast or not yeah and now research um researchers did um a very large study from over 70 different institutions with lots of funding including funding from nasa um, and that looked at tree data from millions of trees uh, over a very long period of time and so they had lots of different species that they could look at lots of different climate zones um uh, over a very long period of time and could try to f- like see patterns in that huge data set and figure out what's going on with the masting. And one of the big questions they wanted to to answer is like, is there like a reason not to do masting? And they found that there is one where the trees rely on seed dispersal by animals. They mm-hmm. don't want to like mess Stop. with the populations of the yeah. of, of the, the dispersers right like if you have some birds that eat the cherries and then transport the seeds somewhere else you don't want to have like tons of cherries the bird population explodes and then starve them all the next year um, and then next time you make a lot of cherries there's not enough birds to disperse them anymore so they instead make a constant amount of fruit um, over between the years and they mm-hmm. don't really have these gap years uh, in between um, so that's one thing they could observe in a data set uh, so that that trees relying the, the more the trees were relying on animal seed dispersal dispersal the more uh, or the less likely they were to actually do the masting 
Um, and they also found other things. Um, they've also found a correlation with the climate where in, in cold and dry areas, the, the seed dispersal happens less often with the help of animals, um, rather by other um, uh, other means, like, like for example, by, by wind. Um, and therefore, they are more likely to do masting there, where the opposite is true in like very wet and humid areas where um, like rainforests and so on, um, there the seed dispersal through the animals is much more likely. Um, and... Yeah, th that's that's pretty much the, the big takeaway from this that, that, that you can link like this relationship between the tree and the animals that disperse the seeds um, together um, to explain why some trees are doing the masting and some other trees are not. Uh, we don't really fully understand how the trees are doing it, especially the coordination. I mean, it's we sort of talked about it as if it's just like a single tree doing that, but often it's like tree populations. It's like the entire forest produces a ton of acorns in one year. And then the next years, it doesn't do any of it. Uh, how do the trees communicate that? Like, how do they all sync up to do this? Um, this is not fully understood yet how that works. Oh, I have a follow-up on something that Yaram was talking about uh, last last week or some weeks ago or uh, whenever. And Yaram, you, you brought up the paper that in itself is a follow-up paper, 100 Important Questions Facing Plant Science and International Perspective. So this is a paper that came out this year in New Phytologist. As the, the title suggests, very self-explanatory. They sort of look into these 100, what they think are the, the 100 important questions that um, face plant science. And they kind of use an international panel of scientists, so from different continents, and then sort of brought them together and tried to come up with these 100 original questions. And I guess, Yoram, you went through that a little bit last time. So I think the paper came up with some good questions. It's, it's quite broad questions, and, you know, there's a lot of them. It's, it's a wide range. But arguably, you could say that they have they've forgotten some some questions. And and these are the questions... Yoram, Yoram has a suggestion. He's, I, I don't know. I'm trying eagerly, to think one. Eagerly approaching <laughs> his microphone. Um... um, um. Why? Why? How my houseplants dying? I think is the main question. That's the main question we get. got as a researcher. Yeah, they didn't ask. That's true. They didn't ask. I guess like <laughs> most pressing say, plant research question is why are my houseplants dying? They did say in the title important questions, not just like most common questions. So, um, one argument is that maybe these questions looked kind of at the the current important questions, but they didn't look enough into the future. So mm -hmm. they a lot of the questions were about you know global change, especially climate change. But, you know, this is things that are happening now and in the near future. But what are the major questions that will face plant science in the 22nd century, Yoram? Um, how to grow plants when there is no water. <laughs> okay, a little bit short-sighted still. As it turns out... Space um, plants? Um, is it space major... plants? <laughs> it's not space, space plants. Um, one of one of the major subjects of of what we will be asking in the twenty second century is to do with plant microbe interactions, and the reason we know what these questions are is because somebody used an amazing new technology, which is a CRISPR machine learning. There we go. AI. They asked ChatGPT. Oh my god. <laughs> you got there in the end. So um, there's a new paper that's come out in Trends Eco Evo, and it is 100 Important Questions Facing Plant Science 
dot, 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 derived using a large language model. So in this, um, the scientists basically took the recent publication and sort of saw how well ChatGPT could effectively recreate it. So they point out in their introduction that the the publication that is not the ChatGPT one, the, the OG publication took a lot of work. It took, you know, 1.5 years to, to sort of get these scientists to come to these consensus. It involved scientists from like across the world, um, they they really put a lot of effort and it required you know a lot of networking and in the end the question is maybe can chat gpt do the same sort of thing no <laughs> like i'm I, I, like i'm i'm curious about all of this like chat gpt stuff but in the end i don't think it can do a lot of value um so, so one of the arguments, again, in the introduction of the paper is that potentially as diverse and as, as like, you know, as much as the scientists were, were trying to come up with these ideas, they are still limited very much by their own context. So if you have, you know, 100 people, they, they're still those contexts. So with something that's basically scraping the entire Weberverse, you're getting everything. Yeah, but so also you get like always just like the most likely outcome. Like literally okay. it's 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 giving you the most likely mainstream basic middle of the road averaged answer to any question that you can give it. And sometimes this is the answer that you need, but it's not the exciting new bits I would I would say that you get there. You don't get like the fringe stuff. You don't get the out of the box thinking. You get pretty much in the box center of the box thinking with ChatGPT. Sorry. Okay, so that was a, a strong criticism from Dr. Schwarzman over there. Um, not a doctor. Not a not doctor. A do- <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anyway, so they, they basically did this. They they checked with ChatGPT. Um, they they looked at what categories it came up with. They also did something where they sort of s- imitated this this splitting of people from different continents. So they also asked what questions are more important based on different continents. Um, and asked, yeah, also questions a bit more about the the further future. So as I said, they asked what's going to happen in the second half of the 21st century, not just like in the near, near future. And then also what will go like deeper into the future. Um, so this was this plant microbe interactions. You were actually right as far as the second half of the 21st century. They put a lot of focus on developing crops that generally speaking have less requirements. So yes, for water, but generally just like... Crops that do better with less, which is, I think, the the company motto of every. It's really, it's really capitalism's motto. Like I, I saw a headline that said, like, uh, we researchers are figuring out how to grow plants in the dark because then in space we don't need light to grow the plants. I'm like, ah, how should that work? Like, at what point do you, like, what part of photosynthesis where it's in the name that it needs photons? Did you not understand? But yeah, maybe that uh, probably it's just mushrooms. But um, anyway, yeah, the answer is just stop <laughs> eating plants. Um, anyway, so they said that Chat GPT like captured quite a lot of the the common topics that had come up. Um, it came up with things about homeostasis, nitrogen fixation, plant pollinator interactions, um, microbiomes, and also how to use plants in the future. So getting services, products, and biofuels. They also did the comparison of like the 100 questions that their chat GPT came up with, with the um, 100 questions from Armstrong et al. So this like original paper. And the in the Armstrong et al. paper, they sort of, 
they had their 100 questions and they took 11 of them aside and said these are like the critical questions and then they had the further and they put them into to four categories but like even the the critical ones you could just put them into the four major categories um the first category is plants and society the second one is basically like plants climate change and food um the third one is plant environment interactions and the fourth one is molecular approaches um and they sort of looked at the chat gpt questions and said okay they they more or less fit into those same categories they've they've found um similar things perhaps reassuringly chat gpt cares less about climate change and also <laughs> food production but that might be because chat gpt does not care about food as much as humans do potentially um and it had a bit more focus on the plant environment interaction side of things and also on the molecular side of things so it was a little bit more focused into this kind of mechanism again like yeah you're asking an ai maybe it just has different priorities <laughs> um in its life but yeah apart from like it didn't just focus on climate change we didn't focus as much on climate change so that is something where i would say like okay climate change clearly very important but also something that we can get bogged down in like we can get fixated on so maybe chat gpt got around that and it fixated on other things as well um and it came up with not just making more food but also what about other sustainable products that we can mm -hmm. make from plants whereas like we're obviously quite desperately interested in making sure we have a bit more food yeah in the future and as i said yeah more on the mechanics side of thing so yeah they had this comparison and in the end basically they said you know it's not the same but it's kind of a jumping off point which is a lot of the answers about chat gpt at the moment you know like yeah, yeah. it's not the same <laughs> it's a jumping up point you should definitely make sure you check your answers and i did see that they had something in the results of the discussion where they said okay yes chat gpt couldn't come up with the same creativity as the humans which i think is just like a little bit of like token reassurance for the scientists out there that we don't feel that we're like fully replaceable by the machines just yet um i don't know but that's also the the, <laughs> the feeling that whenever i ask it to do something like i mostly use it for fun like I've, i very rarely try to use it in like a professional context but whenever i was using it i felt like it would give me like not the most creative and most fun and most interesting answer it would give me like the average answer and the average answer is very rarely the most interesting answer to to a question um so yeah it's exactly that starting off point is jumping off point like you can like get like the big chunk of obvious things out of the way by having ChatGPT write them up for you and then you can focus on sort of the things on the edges that ChatGPT doesn't immediately pick up because it's not talked about in the like in the the stuff that it learned um uh, often enough because yeah it's 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 statistics it's like probability what it gives you like the thing that that it read the most it's the thing that it says the loudest which is also something you should appreciate as far as like like i think it's sense of humor if you would say that like these these ai have a sense of humor it's a very dry literal sense of humor which i think is like like so my colleague keeps on sharing me this like majestic salmon swimming in the sea and it's like salmon fillets in the ocean like majestically swimming and it's because yeah what chat gpt mostly sees as salmon is like <laughs> shopping cart salmons and it puts them like majestically in the sea and it's it's it's, it's objectively funny but it's funny because it's like a very literal interpretation of what salmon is probability wise and what the sea is yeah. and yeah you're laughing at the robot not with the robot in that case no no if if any robots are listening i am laughing with you <laughs> all the way <laughs> have you got any more plant facts here yeah i have something that you you talked about like the importance of of plant microbe interactions and um 
we've talked about in the past as well, I think also in the Plant Book Club, um, about the wood white web. Um, mm -hmm. So the idea that you have trees that grow in a forest and their, their roots interact with the mycelium of fungi and the fungi then interact with other roots of other trees and then there's a trade happening of carbon. There is signals being transmitted from one tree to the other. So like one tree gets eaten by a bug and then it alerts through the wood wide web all of the other trees. As it turns out, hardly any of that is backed by science really. Um, I've, <laughs> I've listened to a very good podcast about research as I did like a meta uh, analysis on the, the existent body of research that is there um, mm -hmm. and, and comparing that to sort of the tales that are out there by, by journalists or popular science book authors and, and other people and even in the research community as well so it's not just sort of the people adjacent to research but also the research community themselves and, is it like and it's, a, a, lot it's of a the very clients. tight network right it's a very it's a very few people yeah and, yeah, uh, I, we've noticed this in reading these books, right? So when we read these books, like you, you hear these stories come up over and over again because they are very sexy, interesting stories. And like, I don't know if it, I look at the footnotes and I look to see, oh, what reference is that? Like, and it's always referencing back to the same like three or four groups who sort of have these these ideas yeah and so i listened to um the podcast the rise and decay of the wood wide web from the show earth to human um where um they uh, the 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 host of the the show talked to justin cast and jason uh Haxima, uh yeah Haxima, um that are both like um fungi researchers and they sort of talk about what's what we is actually known and what what is sort of just speculation just like fancy ideas and a lot of the things that we hear about the wood wide web have very little experimental evidence to back this up and so often like, this is like like greenhouse experiments or very like small scale experiments and then from that extrapolated to oh yeah in the forest it is the same and while the forest is a very different ecosystem from like growing like three plants in the same soil with one piece, a species of fungi added to it to see if there's an interaction with the roots, how you would do like research in a lab where you like reduce different factors. But in, in the forest, it's much more complicated and much less easy to explain. And so like the evidence that exists doesn't really support the claims that are made about the wood wide web. Yeah, but I think this is also like a bit of a the science versus then the reporting as well, because I think, you know, you like what the science shows is this can happen, right? So they, I think there are, I, again, I haven't heard this podcast, so you'll have to like let me know. But I think you know we do have the science that tracks that there can be this exchange from plant A to plant B via fungus X or whatever. Like there can be, like they've they've done tracers, right? So they've done um, radioactive tracer to show movement of carbon. I think um, maybe yeah. carbon and nitrogen or carbon and phosphorus. Even like although even for that you can find different explanations. So the idea is that they they spike one plant with um, carbon dioxide with like heavy carbon. And mm -hmm. then you see how this is taken up in the plant. Then it can sort of move from the plant roots into the soil and then slowly diffuse over to a plant when there's no fungus. Or when there is fungus connecting to root systems, it could ta be taken up by the fungus from the roots and then transported quickly to the other plant and then taken up by the other plant. But mm -hmm. there's also the option that this is like it's diffusing into the soil and then the fungus is taking it up from the soil and not from the other plant from the roots and then transporting it. Um, so even that is sort of debatable how much carbon trade is happening there. Um, but mm -hmm. specifically when it comes also to the things like signaling, um, like stress signaling across this network, um, 
from from what I understood from the podcast, there is not a lot of evidence that supports that. Um, really, that like one tree gets attacked and then it can alert, like it can send out like a, a fungi email to all of the other trees, and then they start putting up the defenses. Why this is like much more speculation <laughs> than than something that's backed up by science. Yeah, I. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, check out the podcast. It's also a very it's it's a very cool interview. It's about an hour long and very interesting view. And they actually recommend one of the books that we read in the Plant Book Club, the um not the Forest and Scene, but um one about the diaper mushrooms that we read. What? Uh, we read something about a guy growing mushrooms on diapers. Uh this uh, Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake. Is a book that we read, and um, that you can after they recommend that at the end of the show that on Earth to Human, and so when you're done with the interview, you can listen to the Plant Book Club where we talk about this book. I think I didn't like the book, if I remember correctly. I think we all liked the book. The book was fun. That was a good book. I don't really remember. <laughs> I thought I, I was. was I was. I think that was one of the better books that we looked right. We, it could one be. of the better books that we read. I think because yeah. I, I remember being like, I think my mom suggested it, and then like five other people suggested it. I was like, it's not plants, and I was like, really like, I'm gonna hate this, and then I was like, oh, actually, it's like a really good book. I'm, yeah. I'm happy we're reading this. Yeah, but they recommend this as one of the books that gets the Wood Wide Web right. Um, compared to others um, that are okay. a little bit too enthusiastic about it. So yeah, so that's a quick podcast recommendation. Do you have something else? I have something else, which is, again, I think technically a, a throwback, though I don't think either of us remember it. But I just saw um, something was published recently in, I think, in one of the Plus Biology Journals, maybe. Um, and it's that scientists have managed to revive some roundworms so it's basically like a C. elegans cousin, I think. So just a little tiny little worm. Um, but the the exciting thing is that they woke them up from a particularly long slumber. They had been sleeping in the Siberian permafrost for 46,000 years. Oh. And this is important because the most, as far as I can remember and find quickly on the internet, the longest plant that we've been able to revive is firstly coming from seeds, which feels a little bit like cheating. Um, it's not coming from tissue. It's, you know, like that's a whole worm. It's okay. It's it's in a special state where it kind of is. Yeah, you know, like dead. worms can make like these weird little capsules things. Yeah, they're in dormant states. So maybe the seed is the equivalent of that, although I'm not sure. Um, but also, yeah, the plant, it's um, Silene Stenophila, and it was regenerated, I think, in 2012 by a Russian team of scientists. Um, there was a paper in PNAS. But, and that also came from um, permafrost, so up north. And in, in, in one of the press releases I read about that, they were like, oh, this foreshadows other developments that could emerge from the permafrost. I think they were talking about zombies. It turns out they were just talking about some worms um, that were <laughs> I mean, going to come a few years later. Zombies. They could maybe eat our brains or something. Whatever. Anyway, the important thing is that the plant itself from the seed was only 32,000 years old, which means the worms are older than the plants, which means plant scientists out there, you need to get your <laughs> together. <laughs> because I really feel like anything that worms can do, plants can do better. And so far, <laughs> I'm just disappointed. I Because I, I saw this press release, I was like, I, for sure the plants, we've done this already with plants and our plants are older. And then I Googled it and the plants are not older and it, it, it broke my heart a little bit. Um, <laughs> so can we please go Guess. try and find some older seeds? Like 32,000 years is just apparently not old enough. 
get us some 60,000 year old seeds and grow them. I have uh, a couple of very quick things. Um, I have a follow-up on eDNA. We talked about it already twice now. Um, a year ago, you you brought a paper about the people in the, in the zoo vacuuming the air and uh, taking samples from animals there from the air. Um, and then uh, I think last time or a, yeah, a couple of shows ago, we talked about the, the, the filters and like... Oh, and the ethical concerns, kind of the yeah. kind of human DNA get, yeah. Exactly that. So when like they they had like the the air monitoring stations and they were saying like we can extract DNA from them, and then figure out that like, humans hang around these stations and and get their DNA, and now the same researchers went to the zoo with the vacuums. They did now another experiment um, that's a little bit more like directly useful. Um, the, the zoo experiment was sort of like a nice proof of concept. Now they put up um, like air traps in a forest, in a small forest, and um, took samples there from the air and analyzed the DNA that they were trapping. And they found 64 different species. Unfortunately, in the in the summary that I found, they only looked at like uh, mammals and uh, birds and not at plants. So we don't really care that much, but it shows that... <laughs> They're that, like, we can already see the trees. We know the trees are here, Yara. Like, <laughs> yeah. But it's just that one out. it could be interesting for like all of the ecosystem research to find like the rare species that are difficult to track, um, difficult to directly observe, but you can find their DNA in the air and then say, okay, the this species must have been here because we literally have its DNA. So um, mm. this can help in mapping out like rare um, species. So this is the environmental DNA follow-up. Um, I found another story that I found quite interesting because we often also talk about reforestation and the idea that we just, if we grow enough trees, then we can sink all of the carbon from the air in the trees and then it's all like happy and so on. Turns out um, there's not enough tree seedlings in the nurseries, um, especially not diverse enough seedlings. So researchers looked in the, northern, in the United States, in the northern states of the U.S., um, at what kind of tree species they would need to do reforestation programs there and what is available in the nurseries. First of all, they figured out that there's only um, a small percentage of all the nurseries are owned by the public and the other are like commercial nurseries uh, in private uh, private hands. And for some species, they barely have enough seedlings in all of the nurseries to plant one hectare of trees, which is not a lot. Um, you meet many more than that. So it, sh it shows that... Um, and for other species, they couldn't get any seedlings because it's not a commercial plant. And so nobody grows enough seedlings there in, in these nurseries. So um, a big bottleneck that I, wasn't, I, I didn't think about in reforestation is that simply the nurseries don't have the trees that you want to grow by the thousands somewhere in the countryside. Yeah, I, I know of this problem from um, conservation in Australia. So I, I had some friends working, I think, with grass species. And yeah, like just nobody has seeds of grass species. So just like going and finding enough of these grasses to collect them to then spread them is really hard. And then the other thing with a lot of um, like Australian tree species is they're, they've really like peculiar ways of wanting to have their seeds germinated. So a lot of them, they want to like have the whole thing catch on fire before they're going to release the seed and things like that. So um, I have some friends who spent their entire like one year final project just having these seeds and throwing everything they could at them in the lab to see what would make these difficult seeds crack. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so these are like two quick facts. I have another very short fact that can lead us into our cat fact, because this is also not really um, plant related. It's 
bird and truffle related but i found it quite cute um uh, they they figured out that there's like two uh, ground dwelling bird species in patagonia Mm-hmm. that are um dispersing truffles so they they like many other animals they are attracted by the scent of the truffles that grow underground pick them up eat them and then disperse the spores of these these truffles over a, a larger distance um which is interesting because i uh, as far as i understood it it wasn't known before that birds are also attracted by the smell of the truffles and these are not the truffles that humans eat like there's many different truffle species but all of them grow underground and have like a very distinct smell to them or like they all evolved into like different smells but all like very strong smells that attract animals specifically to spread them around and this one um has found um two ground dwelling bird species that are uh, interested in this truffle it's weird. I've never really thought about how good birds are at smelling things. Yeah, me neither. I thought they go by like eyesight because also they they move around so quickly. They are high in the air, but these are ground dwelling birds, so they don't fly around. So maybe they have to smell more. Cat fact: Have you ever heard a rat laugh, Tegan? No, Yaram, rats can't laugh. No, they can laugh, but uh, it's a trick question because you can't hear it because it's so high-pitched that human ears can't pick it up. But rats do emit like a high-pitched screeching noise that they do when they're happy and relaxed and playing. Um, that's considered sort of laughing. Um, so when they are in an environment that they like and they're playing and they're having a good time, then they specifically in these situations, they make this this high-pitched sound that we can't hear Um with just our ears, only with special microphones. Um, and researchers said, like, let's have some fun with some rats. And they took some rats and they made them feel comfortable <laughs> in a special, in a, like a new environment. They got accustomed to the researchers. The researchers were playing with them and then tickling them. They apparently ticklish on the back and on the belly and on their back. Um, and researchers were tickling them and then the rats would make that sound. Uh, so that was their control in the experiment. And then it gets a little bit darker. Um, first, they did some brain scans. That's still like not very invasive, but they figured out there's like a specific region of the rat brain that's get activated when they're laughing. And then they do what researchers do. They knock that out. And <laughs> if you knock out something in the brain, it's often involves surgery. Um, so not so nice for the rat. And especially the outcome is quite sad because then the rats, when this specific little part of the brain was was damaged, the rats did not want to play and they did not laugh anymore. So they were very sad rats. Um, but it teaches us this experiment that um, like playing and laughing has a specific region in the brain that's evolved and developed specifically for that function. So it's not just something that we do with our very clever monkey brains, but something even like uh, rodents have and uh, evolved with them. So this shows us there must be some biological importance to that, to have that around. And so we can try to figure out why, why we have that. But like the ending of the story is a little bit sad, but I like the beginning where it's about like tickling a rat as an as an experiment. Um, this would be the part of 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 being a like a, a researcher. I would like to do like this is a, an experiment that I would enjoy tickling some rats. Thank you, Yoram. That was awful. Um, now we also have the title of the podcast, which was the end was a little bit sad, but I liked the beginning. 
<laughs> and with that, we come to the end of today's show. So you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Plants and Pipettes. We're on X at <laughs> Plants for Pets. We're not really on X anymore. First of all, I, I, I will continue to call it Twitter and also I'm not really using it anymore. So if you want to get in touch with us, you have a much better chance of doing that on Mastodon. We're at Plants and Pipettes at Mastodon dot, uh, at podcast.social. Cool. And as always, our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. Thank you and goodbye. Great. Tickle some rats, you weirdos. <laughs> <laughs>